Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about spiritual stunting and divine development. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music he hears, however measured or far away. Henry David Thoreau. It's helpful from time to time to take a look at some of the inspirational quotes behind the concept of different drummer. When I first heard this particular quote, I didn't connect it at all to the journaling that I'd done in college under the name different drummer. Nor did I think of it immediately when I started Inappropriate Conversations as a podcast and decided that the only way it would really work is if I could reference an inspirational figure and decided to call that figure Different Drummer. Nevertheless, shortly after putting the show together, that was one of the quotes that I found and decided really needed to be shared. So here I am sharing it again. Today, I'm going to start with the Different Drummer early in the episode as a way of setting the course for what might be two consecutive inappropriate conversation shows. And I want to do so by telling you how I encountered the book The Different Drum by M. Scott Peck. I'm on a plane flying to Seattle, or at least the Seattle, Washington area. This was many years ago. And in the course of making the trip, I was doing reading to research myself and prepare for prison ministry. It was not something that I'd done before, and frankly, not something that I've done since. But I was invited by some people who were part of my church, people with whom I'd done parachurch activities before. I'd been engaged in ministry with these people and had a great deal of confidence and trust in that relationship. Nothing in that relationship, by the way, has fallen apart in subsequent years. And in the course of getting ready for going in and doing something that was way outside my comfort zone, just the idea of sharing the gospel message, or my own personal experience was thankfully not the role that I was called to do. The role that I was called to do in this case was to essentially be a a gopher, a steward of sorts, moving things around, making sure people had water or coffee or tea or whatever they needed to drink. But I didn't necessarily have a seat at the table, as you might say. And yet I felt like it was really important that I prepare myself end to end for this experience of what it would mean to be behind the prison walls with a group of, say, 40, 45 other Christian men engaging in this prison ministry outreach. So in the course of reading up on it, reading the materials from this organization, understanding my role, everyone else's role to the best of my ability, I came across a reference to the book The Different Drum by M. Scott Peck. So we get to the place that we were going to be vacationing in a timeshare situation. And one of the things, I'd never been in a timeshare before. For us, vacations had by and large been either hotel experiences or staying with family. But to really be inside the home of a stranger, trying to understand how their kitchen appliances work and their washer and dryer and the wise and perhaps unwise ways to try to cool down a home without air conditioning in a part of the country where... You didn't really need air conditioning most of the year, but we were there in July. So the techniques that they were recommending for which windows to open, what times of day, which fans to run, which way to direction to point those fans in, there was a lot of learning to do. And in some ways, that experience just kind of forces you to engage a little bit with the family who's, of course, not there because you're there in their home at a time when they're away on vacation someplace else. And one of the things that they'd done that I thought was really neat was that they'd set up a bookcase where there were books that were theirs that you could read. But there was also a very specific shelf on this bookcase that they had organized for the purposes of people taking and leaving books. Knowing that most people coming to this somewhat remote part of Washington State would be probably flying. And, you know, sometimes when you're an avid reader, and I would not describe myself as the person who goes cover to cover on a ton of books in a year, But my wife does. So if you're an avid reader, they gave you a place where you could take a book that you might have finished on the plane and leave it on this bottom shelf 
but anything that was on that shelf, you could take with you. It was their way of saying, hey, please leave our property here in our home, but here is a situation where take-and-go take privileges are, are intact. And one of the books that was on the take-it-and-leave-it shelf inside this family's home was The Different Drum, Community Making and Peace, A Spiritual Journey Towards Self-Acceptance, True Belonging, and New Hope for the World, from M. Scott Peck, M.D. Now, I don't know that much about Peck. This is the only book of his that I have. But how can I resist taking this book off the shelf on that particular day, when I just read about it in preparation for prison ministry, being cited as an example of the kind of community-making and community-building that a team of men, some of whom are strangers to each other, needs to accomplish in order to be capable of functioning as a single organism inside a prison. So I picked the book up, I read it, and then I set it aside. In fact, I didn't read it all the way through. The main part I read was the part that was designed to talk about what happens when you show respect for other people. So let me deal just quickly with the piece that was referred to and the piece that I kind of took the most to heart years ago, because it's a parable. And then I'll get into the different drummer segment. And we'll talk somewhat about this concept of what it means to have something of a divine calling and how so few Christians appear to have that. What is stunting the spiritual development of so many people within the church? But first, a parable from the prologue to the book The Different Drum by Peck, published originally in 1987. He refers to it as a the rabbi's gift, and paraphrasing freely, it talks about a monastery out in the woods that had fallen upon hard times. Once a great order, it had, over the years, lost members either to disinterest or to old age and death, and they had reached the point where this dying order only had four members and one leader. They were all aware, the abbot and the four others, of a rabbi who from time to time would come to the woods to a small hut, which he used as a hermitage. And finally, one day, realizing that things weren't going well and that he could take any advice from anybody with uh, that kind of wisdom, the abbot went to visit the old rabbi and they commiserated about you know, the loss of spirituality and both um, the rabbi's experience within his synagogue and obviously this abbot's experience in his monastic order showed that the times were changing and things hadn't gone well. At the end of the conversation, though, the abbot says to the rabbi, it has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, but I have still failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me, no piece of advice that you can give that would help me save my dying order? No, I'm sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, What did the rabbi say? He couldn't help, the abbot answered. We just wept and read the Torah together. The only thing he did say, just as I was leaving, it was something cryptic, was that the Messiah is one of us. I don't know what he meant. Now, in the days and weeks that followed, the monks began to think about the mystery of the rabbi's off-the-cuff remark. But each one of them came to the conclusion that the rabbi either meant them, in which case perhaps they should behave differently, they should live up to the, the calling or the role, or perhaps he meant one of the other brothers, in which case it might call for treating that person differently. He couldn't possibly have been me, Peck writes in his accounting of this tale. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet supposing he did. Suppose I'm the Messiah. Oh, God, not me. I, I couldn't be that much for you, could I? As they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one of them might be the Messiah. And on the off, off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery, to picnic on its tiny lawn, to wander among some of its paths, every now and then to go into the dilapidated chapel to meditate. As they did so, without even being conscious of it, 
They sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that had now begun to surround the five old monks and seemed to radiate from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling, about it. Hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently to picnic, to play, to pray. They began to bring their friends, to show them this special place, and their friends brought their friends. Then it happened that some of the younger men came to visit the monastery, started to talk more and more with the old monks, and after a while one asked if he could join them, then another, and another. So within a few years the monastery had once again become a thriving order, and thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. The more interesting thing I want to share later in the show about Peck's book, The Different Drum, is not what I gleaned from it. I'm not going to speak about prison ministry this week. I do have an inkling that I might want to talk about this particular small group organization and its community-building approach next week, because I do think that it's important for me to leave behind this particular chapter in my life, not with a whimper, but maybe with a statement of intent. I understand what it is I'm no longer going to participate in, and I understand why. I spoke a few weeks ago talking about some of the controversies that happened in late December in a converse versus convert episode about having to draw a line because I felt like that's another Christian group that I've participated in that's lost its way, that's failed to remain a community, that's lost this respect that was described in that parable at the beginning of Peck's book, The Different Drum. But I'll get to that in a week or so. When I come back from this, I want to talk instead about faith and the stages of spiritual development. But first, who is Scott Peck? It's uh, common for me to use Wikipedia when I cover this, and that's because it's an easy and potentially either unbiased or well-biased account. It's not the same thing as I would get if I went to the publisher's biography, for example, or to a website like an mscottpeck.com or an mscottpeck.org. He is most famous for the book The The Road Less Traveled, and I'm going to make it clear that I'm not going to refer to any of that at all. I have not read and do not own The Road Less Traveled. There's nothing in my reading of this one book that makes me feel like that would be a mistake to go down in that direction. But at the same time, the one book that I have did not necessarily lead me directly to the other. I'm one who doesn't tend to spend a lot of time with psychiatric theory. For me, the psychologist that I've spent the most time reading and paying attention to over the years is Carl Jung. Jung being a former different drummer. And I don't really have a need to... Well, I don't spend a lot of time in the self-help section. Let's put it that way. But Peck's story is a somewhat familiar one. Somebody who grew up in... An otherwise secular Christian home, for the sake of argument, with you know, loving parents, well-educated, uh, accomplished multiple degrees, served in the army, but spent his time, from a religious point of view, exploring and experimenting. This is quoting the Wikipedia passage. In his second book, People of the Lie, Peck wrote, After many years of vague identification with Buddhist and Islamic mysticism, I ultimately made a firm Christian commitment. One of his views was that people who are evil attack others rather than face their own failures. So somebody who came to Christianity after a period of seeking and exploring. Now I'm not going to speak much more in a different drummer segment about Peck. And part of the reason is that, again, I'm only speaking directly to one book in this show. So there's not, I don't feel a strong, compelling need to discuss the rest of his story. Another reason is, I'm not sure that the rest of his story ends as happily as you might find if you read a different online biography. While Peck's writings emphasized the virtues of a disciplined life and delayed gratification, his personal life was far more turbulent, the Wikipedia article says. For example, in his book In Search of Stones, Peck acknowledged having extramarital affairs and being estranged from two of his children. He married a woman in 1959, and they actually did good work together, jointly receiving the Community of Christ International Peace Award in 1994. But ten years later, they were separated and later divorced. Peck then remarried. He died in September 2005, 
suffering from Parkinson's disease, pancreatic cancer, and liver duct cancer. Not at all a good way to go. The only other thing that I'll mention from Wikipedia before I leave the different drummer introduction is that I really like the connection that they make between Peck's writings and the notions of the uh, stages of community relating directly to the model of organizational theory and the five stages of organizations, the forming, storming, norming, performing, and transforming concepts. I won't deal with them here, but I've experienced this firsthand in a work environment. It's just slightly less interesting to me than what I experienced in a church environment, where Peck's theories were used to talk about community building, and specifically, the four stages of spiritual development. I sometimes get uncomfortable speaking about faith. Now, that's an odd thing to say, because I've spoken about faith several times before, even on inappropriate conversations dealing specifically with that topic. But it makes me uncomfortable because the word itself gets used so broadly. It can be used as a synonym for belief. It can mean a knowledge, which is how I use it. And the gap in between there is fairly staggering. A lot of people within Christian circles talk about the concept of faith as if it's something that they're doing. And they I've met people who've frankly rejected the idea that faith could be in any way connected to an intuitive knowledge of God. There are people who are part of what I would describe as quasi-Christian religious cults who believe and teach that faith is some sort of force, like it's a power like they've somehow morphed some of the concepts of Star Wars in with Christianity. And this is where you get a lot of your prosperity gospel-type teachers who say that if you speak the words and the words are faithful, then the words of faith will become a force and the force will turn into action and the action will bless you. You know, faith is a term that I think in many ways has gotten a bad name. And yet I feel that at times it's the only way that I can describe the concepts that I'm trying to share with people. Because on the one hand... A lot of my personal experiences can only be explained within the realm of faith. And on another hand, if you're trying to make distinctions between what people encounter on a normal, any day, Sunday experience inside a church, well, that local church thing is what we might use the word church to describe. But so often people use church to describe the church universal as well, or an entire denomination, and that gets confusing as well. When I did an interview a few months ago on the Tech Support Rich show, which can be found at uh, simplysyndicated.com, part of the Simply Everything package of exclusive shows there. In that interview, I think really early on, it became important for both Rich and I to make a distinction between, hey, we're talking about these two concepts. One is a local congregation, and the other is a much bigger sort of worldwide Christian thing. I use the word faith there. So I said, well, let's make a distinction between the church, my church and my faith. My church is a building or a place where people worship and a congregation and a a small community, whereas my faith is much bigger. And in some ways, my faith could be slightly synonymous with all Christians everywhere. Now, this gives me an opportunity to quickly cite that that interview was largely about the other podcast, which can be found on this feed at www.inappropriateconversations.org. Walk the Earth is documenting the switch from one church to another church. But at no point was there anything to document when it comes to a change in faith. Well, I believe my faith is growing. I didn't haven't walked away from one faith and into another faith. The Walk the Earth podcast is not about changing faith. It's about changing churches. So as I've described faith before, I want to share what I've previously shared briefly and then connect it to the perspective offered by Peck in his book, The Different Drum, because I was really struck recently rereading some of those chapters, how interesting the connections are and how little I've thought about it, frankly, in the last 10 years. I've shared before that faith comes in four stages, or at least that's how I I was taught in church school. There's this concept of of a loaned faith. This is the equivalent of parents taking an infant in for baptism and the child becoming a, quote, member, unquote, of the church through that process of infant infant baptism. 
And then there's this notion of borrowed faith. So you start off with the faith being loaned to you by your parents. In the worst situations, that's a form of indoctrination. And indoctrination, in this case, in, in the, the bad sense of the term. But in good sense, it's simply just your parents welcoming you as a child into the rest of their community. And in many cases, that's a community of other believers, a community of faith, if you will. Borrowed faith is that grade school activity, late elementary school, junior high school. For some people, it happens even after they graduate from college. But it's that moment of confirmation of saying, I don't have this on my own yet, but I'm going to borrow it. I'm going to go through the process of learning. I'm going to try it on, so to speak. For me and for many, many people, the next stage is what you might call sought faith. You realize that although you've joined a community of faith and that you've learned what you needed to learn and you've professed, there still is that personal experience that hasn't happened. There's that moment where maybe looking around a little bit, raising questions, challenging things, drawing a few spiritual lines in the sand is extremely helpful. Now, a lot of people mourn the fact that a lot of kids go from high school to college and quote-unquote lose their faith along the way. But we're going to explore a little bit what that expression, lose your faith, means. Especially when I see a sought faith as just as much faith as a borrowed faith. For me, the sought faith led to owned faith. That's when you actually turn a corner, have that, that moment of epiphany, if you will, and say, hey, this faith is now not just something that came from my family, not just something that I learned as a school child, not even something that I'm seeking with still a great deal of skepticism and doubt. I feel like I've gotten some answers now, and I feel like those answers are important. And then I'm going to possess those answers and cultivate them and grow in a new direction from there. That's the owned faith. And I think that if I made a mistake in the first year of inappropriate conversations, by not doing a good enough job of specifying how these principles apply to my personal Protestant Christianity and don't apply all that well beyond the borders of Christianity, I might have made a statement along the way that maybe if you if you don't have an owned faith, then you don't have a faith at all. And I, I think I disagree with that claim. I think I disagree with that claim because I'm more akin to the notion that I think all of us have a faith in something. Some people may only end up with a faith in themselves. But all of us, I believe, function inside that realm of at least intuition and probably faith. And part of the reason I feel that way is that I've become convinced, through the writing of Peck in particular, that maybe I was missing something really important by presuming that my understanding of the different types of faith, which I viewed as a progression, to be honest with you, were, was too limited. That it could apply to something much bigger than just Protestant Christianity, or even Christianity in particular, or frankly, even religion itself. That it might be beyond that. Here's how Peck describes it. He describes four stages of spiritual development, one being chaotic and disordered, perhaps even reckless. It's what he describes as the stage for very young children. They tend to defy, they tend to disobey, they're unwilling to accept a will greater than their own. Now, I think when we think about very young children, we don't necessarily see that, but I think anybody who's had a two- or three- or four-year-old living with them understands this notion of a chaotic and reckless stage in spiritual development. Stage two is described this way as the stage in which a person has a blind faith in authority figures, sees the world divided as simply into good and evil, right and wrong, us and them. It's what happens once children are taught and learn to obey authority figures. Stage two. Stage three, described as the stage of scientific skepticism and questioning, a stage three person, does not accept things on, quote, faith alone, but only accepts them if convinced logically. And many people working in scientific and technical research are stage three people. They often reject the existence of spiritual or supernatural forces, since these are difficult to measure or prove scientifically. And those who do retain their spiritual beliefs move away from the simple and often doctrinal fundamentalism of stage two, quote-unquote, faith. Stage four is the stage where an individual starts enjoying the mystery and beauty of nature and existence. While retaining skepticism, he starts perceiving grand patterns in nature and develops a deeper understanding of good and evil, forgiveness and mercy, compassion and love. His religiousness 
and spirituality differ significantly from that of a stage two person in the sense that he does not accept things through blind faith or out of fear, but does so because of genuine belief. And he does not judge people harshly or seek to inflict punishment on them for their transgressions. This is the stage of loving others as yourself, losing your attachment to your ego and forgiving your enemies. Peck describes stage four people as mystics. Now, a couple of points. I probably would have been fairly annoyed at feeling like maybe I am, or at least I'm attempting, to be a stage four Christian in my spiritual development. I'm not sure I would have liked the label mystic. But then I've known many people who've known me well enough to probably say, yeah, that moniker does indeed apply. So that's something I've got to wrestle with. But the interesting thing, if I compare this to you know, some of the earlier statements of belief that I've put out there in Inappropriate Conversations, I'm referring specifically to Inappropriate Conversations 21, Permanent Things That I Believe. This may be something that connects with that. Because if I look at these stages as described in Peck's book or even in Wikipedia and kind of make a comparison to what I've shared before and what I'm sharing now, there's definitely a connection point, and that connection point is, frankly, pretty interesting. For example, stage one is this notion of parents bringing a kid in for baptism. It's that loaned faith, and that's the perspective of the person who's an authority. That's the perspective of the parents or the other people in the church or the pastor. They are the ones loaning the faith, but the person to whom that faith is being loaned, to use my terminology is probably somebody who is chaotic, disordered, reckless, incapable of making an intelligent decision on their own, in part because in the example I'm using, we're talking about an infant. In stage two, this notion of blind faith and authority, well, confirmation class, the first communion class for Roman Catholics, all the other comparable concepts within theism, you've got this this indoctrinational moment. And so I, I like to think of indoctrination as having two different flavors to it. There is a punitive, negative, what I might describe as in some ways a violent indoctrination, one where the student has no choice, for example. This is the problem with notions of having a more religiously oriented, um, proselytizing element inside a public school system, is that it's against the law for children up to a certain age not to not go to school. So you've got the state using the state's authority to force you to be indoctrinated. That is not the direction that you want to go in. That would lead inevitably to the worst sorts of stage two spiritual development. But stage two doesn't always have to be negative. It can be a growth pattern. So when you think about, in many cases, a confirmation class, especially an adult coming to a church, choosing to learn about Christianity for the first time, and taking the equivalent of maybe a new membership class, that sort of confirmation class being inherently voluntary can be a very good thing. And yet, nevertheless, that learning process is about someone saying, I am going to yield to an authority figure who can speak on behalf of, if not Christianity as a whole, at least this one denomination or this one local church. So there's always that notion Now, with blind faith comes humility, but the humility comes in the flavor of being willing to obey and willing to serve. There's an interesting comparison made in the book, The Different Drum, about a lot of people behaving very well and functioning very well in prison. This notion of inmates, or at least some inmates, being the model prisoner. Quoting Peck, For some, the institution may be a prison, Many people who have worked in prisons know of a certain type of model prisoner, cooperative, obedient, well-disciplined, favored by both inmates and the administrative population. Because he is a model prisoner, he may soon be paroled. And three days later, he has robbed seven banks and committed 17 other felonies, so he lands right back in jail, and within the walls of the institution to govern him, he once again becomes a model prisoner. He functions extremely well, inside level two or stage two, but doesn't function well at all outside that. So Pekka along the way describes some people who remain in permanent rebellion to any sort of authority, 
and ultimately a danger to others from the perspective of their spiritual development being so lacking. But then there's the other stage, too, where that person can only function properly in a society. That person can only have a deep and meaningful faith as long as there are rules that have to be followed and they can follow those rules. I've known many people who reject the idea of sought faith, that faith can be loaned and faith can be borrowed, and somewhere along the way, borrowed is the same thing as owned. And here's where Peck says something I think that's very fascinating. He basically says that my notion of of a sought faith, of a seeking person, is perhaps the other side of the coin to somebody who we would refer to as a skeptic. So if the seeking person goes off, sets aside his upbringing, sets aside his confirmation class, and starts looking around and finding other interesting things to consider, perhaps that could lead all the way to the point of agnosticism or atheism. And Peck would still say that that is a further stage in spiritual development than somebody who cowers in fear toward the authority of the faith that they adopted through a confirmation process. Although frequently non-believers, Peck says, people in stage three are generally more spiritually developed than many content to remain in stage two. Although individualistic, they are not the least bit antisocial. To the contrary, they are often deeply involved in and committed to social causes. They make up their own minds about things and are no more likely to believe everything they read in the papers than to believe it's necessary for someone to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior as opposed to Buddha or Socrates or anyone else, in order to be saved. They make loving, intensely dedicated parents. As skeptics, they are often scientists, and as such, they are again highly submitted to principle. Indeed, what we call the scientific method is a collection of conventions and procedures that have been designed to combat our extraordinary capacity to deceive ourselves in the interest of submission to something higher than our own immediate emotional or intellectual comfort. Namely, truth. Advanced stage three, men and women are active truth seekers. Seek and you shall find, it has been said. If people in stage three seek truth deeply and widely enough, they find what they are looking for. Enough pieces to begin to be able to fit together, but never enough to complete the whole puzzle. In fact, the more pieces they find, the larger and more magnificent the puzzle becomes. Yet they are able to get glimpses of the big picture and to see that it is very beautiful indeed and that it strangely resembles those primitive myths and superstitions their stage two parents and grandparents believe in. At that point, they begin their conversion to stage four, which is the mystic communal stage of spiritual development. Continuing, Peck says mysticism, a much maligned word, is not an easy one to define. It takes many forms, yet, through the ages, mystics of every shade of religious belief have spoken of unity, of an underlying connectedness between things, between men and women, between us and the other creatures, and even inanimate matter as well, a fitting together according to an ordinarily invisible fabric underlying the cosmos. So here's the other place where I get uncomfortable. Well, I'm not the least bit concerned about people that I know in the church that I would describe as being stage two in their spiritual development. That doesn't bother me. I'm not at all bothered by the idea that a lot of my non-believing friends are quite clearly, in thought and deed and action, stage three, further along spiritually. It's ironic to me that many of those people would be very aggravated about the fact that I might be discussing them in spiritual terms at all. They may believe that they are further developed and further along, but certainly not spiritually. And yet I think that we could probably agree that where they stand and what they believe is far more mature and far more loving than anything that you find in a lot of the things we hear being spoken publicly by what we might call Christians in stage two of spiritual development. The fear-based, rule-obsessed legalism that reflects, really frankly, the majority of American Christianity. Now, where I get uncomfortable is my deep and abiding notion that of all these four stages, the one that describes me best is certainly four. So while it doesn't bother me, then I might say that I have friends who have advanced spiritually beyond the point 
where some of my Sunday school teachers were, and many of the people in the church that I've left in this process of switching churches. I don't mind at all saying that there's a hierarchy of development here, and those friends are further along than the ones that I've left behind. But I do feel maybe a touch way too much humility, perhaps, to feel at all comfortable saying, oh yeah, I'm stage four. I've got this whole thing sorted out. That's not the way I think about it. The way I think about it is that I've experienced some things and raised some questions and gotten some answers to those questions. And that process has left me in a place that didn't leave me in stage three anymore. That although I might have been willfully during my college years seeking, by the time that experience played itself out, I think I'd been found. Now notice, I don't think of it or describe it as if I have found, like it's an accomplishment, like something I have to be proud of. No, it's more like being found. In the encounter that I described in the Revelation Weekend episode of Inappropriate Conversations, I was the one asking questions. I wasn't the one giving the answers. And perhaps that's one of the keys to being stage four. In this case, I think that he's describing mystics as people who have just sorted out that it's okay to ask the questions in places where the evidence won't give us an immediate, satisfactory response. I've expressed this numerous times, even in the last year of inappropriate conversation shows. I get very frustrated that some people refuse to accept the validity of questions unless the questions have provable answers. What, like the only questions we're allowed to ask are questions that have already been asked and answered? It never made sense to me. But as a Christian, I'm comfortable asking questions where I know there's not going to be a scientific proof. Asking questions where our current level of intelligence and understanding tells us that there's never going to be a proof. Or at least we believe at this point in time, there's never going to be a proof. But it stopped me a little bit and made me think about the relationships between these different factors. Let's go back to that model prisoner example. What happens if you take the legalism away from some people in the church? Especially if those people are charismatic or in a position of influence, or have some sort of political or social power. If taken out of the comfort that they find in believing in an angry, vengeful God who's marking a test while tracking their every step and going to hand them either a passing grade you go to heaven or a failing grade you go to hell, for some people that is a tremendous source of comfort. And if you take the comfort of that limited understanding of God away from them, They're just as likely to fall into chaos and antisocial behavior as they are to genuinely take a seeking path and move into stage three. As Peck describes it, people bounce around between stages all the time. It's a mistake for anyone to suggest that they've always been in whatever stage they feel they're in today, or that they think they always will be in whatever stage they're in, and likely as not for somebody to consistently be in a stage or to demonstrate through the way they live their life or their personal testimony that they have stayed stage three the whole time. I've remained agnostic. I've remained a seeker. I refuse to accept answers which can't be proven through mathematical approaches or at least through a careful scientific method using a heck of a lot of observation. It's an act of will that keeps people there, to be honest with you. But I'm not at all comfortable with the idea that it sounds as if I may be saying, well, gee, I... I pity those people who are stuck in stage three, because I don't. And I also have got to learn, the lesson I think I pull from this, is that I can say on the one hand, I'm done actively participating in ministry with a group of people who clearly have placed their belief in politics ahead of their their faith, and that you know, Jesus, what Jesus had to say about issues is far less important than what the Old Testament has to say about issues, and therefore I'm kind of done. I, I can't stand side by side and endorse that, what I've come now to learn, is a stage two view of Christianity. That perhaps I shouldn't be as judgmental as I feel that I am. I can't look to people that Peck might suggest are in stage three and say there's nothing wrong with that, and yet look at people who are in stage two and say that there's a ton of things wrong with that. It feels like misguided, especially if the individual who is forced out of their way of thinking is incapable of taking the seeker's approach and coming up with a a new and different way of thinking. Like parents who are scared to death that their kid is going to go to school and lose their faith, and therefore they're unwilling to roll the dice and enable their child to function in a college environment because they'd rather their child be 
somewhat less educated than they could be, but secure in this very stage two faith, then they would take the chance and say, no, I want to send my kid off to learn because I have a tremendous faith that the Holy Spirit will be there and the Holy Spirit will guide. In some ways, one of the things that I would cite is this notion that the Holy Spirit being what the Holy Spirit truly is, at least in my experience, is a stage four worldview. And a lot of times when you're dealing with people who are in a stage two worldview, they have no more confidence in the concept of Holy Spirit than people who are genuinely skeptical and in stage three. It's one of the things that perhaps stages two and three have the most in common. And it's interesting to me because much like the concepts of organizational development, where a group of people who are working on a major project can move from a um, transforming level of effectiveness back into a storming sort of level of struggling, that you can move back and forth between the stages in much the same way. So as I talk over this episode and next about spiritual retreats, about that sort of campfire spirit and what I'm walking away from, it dawns on me that I have more to consider as I go here because Peck seems to be suggesting that my notion that that community of faith can continue to function with only stage two people in it because the stage two people left on their own will squeeze out other folks. Well, maybe that's a mistake. Here's what Peck says. An understanding of the stages of spiritual development is important for building community. A group of only stage four people, or only stage three people, or only stage two people, is of course not so much a community as a clique. A true community will likely include people of all stages. With this understanding, it is possible for people in different stages to transcend the sense of threat that divides them, and to become a true community. In my experience, Peck says, the most dramatic example of this possibility occurred in a relatively small community-building group I led several years ago. To this two-day group of 25, there came 10 fundamentalist stage 2 Christians, 5 stage 3 atheists with their own guru, a brilliant, highly rational trial lawyer, and 10 stage 4 mystical Christians. There were moments I despaired that we would ever make it into community. The fundamentalists were furious that I, their supposed leader, smoked and drank and vigorously attempted to heal me of my hypocrisy and addiction. The mystics equally rigorously challenged the fundamentalist's sexism and intolerance and other forms of rigidity. Both were utterly dedicated to converting the atheists. The atheists, in turn, sneered at the arrogance of us Christians and even daring to think that we had gotten a hold of some kind of truth. Nonetheless, after approximately 12 hours of the most intense struggle together to empty ourselves of our intolerances we became able to let one another be, each in his or her own stage, and we became a community. We could not have done so without the cognitive awareness of the different stages of spiritual development and the realization that we were not all in the same place, and that was literally all right. Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. The message that follows is vital to the future of you all. Greetings, fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension. I'm Emma Foster. And I'm Michael Mould. And we're the hosts of The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, Simpsons Indicated's foray into all things Doctor Who. From the old... Hey, hey, Doctor Who. What are you talking about? To the new... I'm the Doctor. I'm worse than everybody's aunt. From the good... We all make no one. We are the superior beings. To the bad... bad. No, not the mind's pro. From the sublime... Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. To the ridiculous. My dreams of conquest. We'll be sharing our thoughts and feelings across the broad spectrum of the Hooniverse. You're serious, aren't you? About what I do, yes. Not necessarily the way I do it. That's the greatest show in the galaxy, part of the simply syndicated 21st century media network. Splendid fellows, all of you, all of you. I would not describe this inappropriate conversation as a recommendation to say, go out and read the book, The Different Drum. Embrace it. Take advantage of it. Although there are, for Christians, I think, some very interesting things that need to be heard here. The notion that many Christians have so divorced Jesus from his humanity that Jesus as God is someone that we can now no longer identify with. And I think that's how some people lose sight 
of what Jesus meant when he said that he was the sick, the homeless, the poor, and the prisoner. They accept that he spoke those words. They believe that perhaps he meant them allegorically. And people like me who hear those same words written in Matthew's gospel and believe that I am actually dealing with Jesus, Jesus incarnate in some ways, when you walk inside that prison and engage in prison ministry, that Jesus said he would be there in in a very real way, in a very mystical way, perhaps. He's there. That there's that gap. But no, rather than recommending that people go out and read the book, The Different Drum, I think if you did, you'd find it to be somewhat dated. Because in 1987, Peck was interested in the likelihood of nuclear annihilation through the conflict, primarily through the conflict, between Russians and Americans. He doesn't really put it entirely in those terms. But when you think about it, this is more than 12 years before the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was a different scenario. And if he was going to make an an advocacy position for the importance of peace and dealing with peace through community making and building communities through techniques recommended in his book, including recognizing where people are in their spiritual development and not casting judgment on people who are part of different religions or non-believers, atheists, agnostics, because they fall into this realm as well. There's a stage for that. And interestingly, that's one of the gaps between my first-year perspective on inappropriate conversations and now. I have come to believe not that there are stages of faith and that some of those stages of faith do not apply to people who are not theists. Instead, I've now come to believe that there are stages of spiritual development and that all of us are spiritual creatures. Therefore, all of us are in some way in some stage of that development. Many of my very favorite people probably are stage three. Some of them are so far along in their unbelief that you might make an argument they're stage four in their unbelief, that they may not accept the same principles of Christianity that I do, that if they're Muslim, they may not be the pinnacles of the the faith from an Islam perspective, but that they may nevertheless have a guru quality to it, have an insight that is bigger and broader than just what I can measure and what I can calculate. But if Peck were to write a book today, if he were alive, to write a book today about community building, I don't know that nuclear annihilation would be the concern that would be driving him forward. I think maybe it would actually be some of those things that Jesus spoke directly of in Matthew chapter 25. It might be health care. It might be poverty. It might be the political divide that makes so many people, including so many Christians, blind to the realities where we see homelessness as a problem that a building a few prisons would solve, and not a problem that we might be able to address in some other way. So I'm engaged in what I would describe as community building online, that this doesn't have to happen face-to-face in a weekend retreat. It's not an event that it, there's a point where you aren't doing it, and then you, you start doing it, and you do it for a few days pretty intensely, and then you're at the place where it's after you did it, that notion of a retreat, that gathering around the campfire, so to speak. No, in an online world, that process of creating community can be done in a way that never stops. Now, it is certainly aided greatly if you have the opportunity to meet face-to-face and engage directly with people, but I've come to believe that that's not as much a requirement as I certainly would have thought 10 or 15 years ago, and certainly not as much a requirement as I'm quite sure that my parents' generation still thinks today. And the key to it is, it needs to be okay for people to be both believers and unbelievers. It needs to actually be okay for fundamentalists to have a role to play within that community. We often think and speak in terms of, if I could just get the bigots off the island, then the island would be peaceful and happy, and it would be the utopia that we've always intended it for, for it to be. But I don't necessarily think that's true. I think the turn that you have to take mentally to root out all those people you think are less than is probably a turn that's going to drop you into a stage where you're going to find yourself just as fundamentalist as the people that you got rid of. Maybe you wouldn't be fundamentalist evangelical Christian. Maybe you wouldn't be fundamentalist within the realm of any particular religion. But the thing that turns you from somebody who's seeking to somebody who's rooting out certainly would represent a a drop in the stages 
of spiritual development. So I think we've got to learn to live and work with each other. And I think the key there is understanding where people come from. There are people who are beyond the level of listening to authority, who do not seem to have a maturity that enables them to participate in any sort of intelligent way. I'm thinking in terms of people who are very young, before the age of being truly eligible for something like Facebook or an online forum, getting on an online forum and creating a lot of chaos because they're just too immature to be there. It's stage one stuff. Stage two works if those same people, while still having a lot of antisocial views, and antisocial could be in the realm of being anti-religion, but it could just as easily be religious people who are very uh, vile in their approach to others who are different, who are bigoted, who are xenophobic. That still works if those people were to join an online community and be extremely careful to obey all of the rules. When I first joined the forum on Simply Syndicated many years ago, a forum that doesn't exist today, but it was uniquely and very vibrant for many years, I wonder if there weren't a lot of people who looked at me as being essentially a stage two Christian, and therefore problematic in lots of ways, who was only okay because he was following the rules. That if you stripped the forum's rules away, what would this be like? Would it be like peeling off the mask and seeing the monster underneath? And you wonder how long did it take people interacting with me online to realize that's not what I think, and that's not my understanding of the world. And that it wasn't for me just a matter of being able to get along nicely with others because there were rules in place that I had chosen to yield to. There was an authority that I was willing to respect. But I guess what I would say about it is that if you did have that type of stage two Christian in your midst, they'd still be okay to interact with you in that online forum as long as they were still willing to obey the rules of that forum, in addition to trying to obey the other rules in their life, rules to which they may have committed a great deal of you know, fundamentalist zeal toward, uh, biblically, for example. Most of the people that I met, though, I think if I were trying to break down what that online community was like, most of them were stage three. And that's what I think made the group so interesting, is that you had a lot of people who were absolutely unafraid to ask questions, and therefore unafraid to hear answers which might have caught him off guard, might have been sort of challenging. And every now and then, you'd hit a button where somebody who's Christian and perhaps stage two would get really offended by something somebody said and forget the rules of the community and strike back. And you'd have conflict over that until a moderator or somebody else would bring the group back in line again. But likewise, you were just just as often going to see somebody who wasn't coming to uh, an argument from the perspective of fundamentalist Christianity, they were coming to an argument from the perspective of, of a very hard atheist perspective and would suddenly forget the rules of the community, just like the other stage two folks, slip themselves into stage two if they weren't there already, and lash out at others and, and try to seek no prisoners. One, the fundamentalist Christian, seeking to convert at all costs, and we've seen how badly that can go. I mean, the treatment of the native people living in both North and South America is a pretty good example of fundamentalist stage two Christianity gone violently wrong. But you also see at least that group of people has the goal of getting someone to say the magic words so they can welcome them into their family. The other, I think, often has the goal. The, the flip side of that fundamentalist Christianity, the fundamentalist anti-Christian, usually has the goal of simply destruction. <laughs> you know, It's often a take no prisoners, um, let's Let's cast off and exile or, or mutilate and destroy all the ideas which I think are backwards, superstitious, and dangerous. So I guess what I'm saying is that the community still works with all these stages represented as long as everyone is working to be part of a community. For some, that means respecting the rules and yielding to them for the first time, moving from stage one to stage two. For others, it means remembering that even though on their own, they may have a very fearful reaction to the things that are happening. They may not be at all prepared for a truly open-minded conversation about the death penalty or abortion, but they're willing to keep their fundamentalism in check because they're capable of conforming to rules. That's one of the things that stage two people should be good at. The other group, seeking, looking for new ideas, looking for new information, they're going to function reasonably well. 
And I'm hoping that it's neither arrogant pride nor a mistaken misconception on my part that the people who got to know me best in that situation noticed that what they were really seeing wasn't the stage two Christianity, which is how they interpreted all Christian behavior. It was something different than what they'd seen before. Something of maybe a mystical thing. A stage four in the mind of Scott Peck. Once again, I don't limit this concept of stage four spiritual development to Christianity, Protestant or otherwise. I don't limit it to theism. I don't limit it to people who would fall under the umbrella of, quote, religious, unquote. I'm open-minded enough, perhaps maybe a little bit more open-minded than what I've read in the pages of this book, to the idea that there could be a stage four of development that functions within what we would today describe as unbelief as well. There's an interesting concept I'd like to close with, and I don't have anything in front of me. I can't quote this accurately, so I'll just kind of go from memory. But there's this notion out there that you, they'll know we are Christians by our love, I guess is the, the song reference I would use for it, the truly a campfire hymn from my, from my youth. But what does it mean to say they'll know we are Christians by our love? So often today when you have conversations about love with Christians, their view of love is tough love. To them, love is dad with a belt, you know, or with mom with a twitch or a piece of wood, spanking some intelligence and knowledge into you. It's, a, it's tough love with a capital T because they're afraid of what it would mean to let X equal X, to allow people to be genuinely who they are and to find out what will happen spiritually as a result of that. No, I think when you talk about people who are loving in the sense that the hymn should mean, what does it mean to say you, that we'll, you'll know somebody's a Christian? My hope is that it means that that love would translate itself into people who have a genuine, open-minded, non-prejudicial love for everybody. People who don't tend to demand their own way. People who accept people as they are. People who try to find the good in whatever situation they're in and within whichever people that they're dealing with. Those who choose to combat conflict, to smooth over differences, to contribute even in the most subtle ways, confident without being arrogant, that sort of thing. In other words, genuinely, bizarrely weird people. You just can't quite put your finger on that if you met them and knew they were a Christian, you probably would have no clue what their denomination was, that they don't fit the mold. An almost mystical quality about them in the sense that there's no stereotype that genuinely and truly applies. Because love's going to be like that. It's going to be surprising. It's going to be different. It's going to be outwardly focused and not inwardly focused. And it's going to reflect the fact that a time perhaps even years or decades of seeking, have created a path of knowledge in the wake of this individual that could easily be described as a form of faith. Not a blind faith. Not faith as being the same thing as belief. But faith reflecting a type of knowledge or a type of experience that guides behavior without necessarily, overtly or obviously, being an act of yielding to authority. It can simply be someone who's doing something that seems and feels right. We could use a fair share more of those people in the church today. We could use a great deal more of those people out in our educational and scientific communities today. Church, for me, has become a place that doesn't reflect a great deal of community. It isn't a peaceful place. It's a place where I've come through a period of intense storming, of a great deal of negativity. And a lot of that is because we have, maybe I'm guilty of it to a certain degree myself, left stage two people in charge exclusively. And in some ways, even if you've filled that stage two environment with what Peck would describe as model prisoners, you have nevertheless left the prisoners in charge of the asylum. I'll figure out in the next Inappropriate Conversation show if I can bring this home to the notion of what was it like to participate in the spiritual treats and community-building activities that I've decided I'm not going to do anymore, whether it's a wise decision that I've decided to not do those things anymore. 
And what's the future of the church, either way? I'll get back to you when I've thought more about it. Thanks for listening. everybody rich here you know one of the best things about simply syndicated is the great community of listeners we've got and all of the things you guys do to help us out something you could do that helps us spread the word about our shows is to let people know that you're listening on facebook and twitter all our episodes have sharing buttons on them so you can tell your friends about us with just a few clicks of the mouse just visit our website at simplysyndicated.com and click the sharing buttons to help spread the word 